and I asked for my reservation and they couldn't find it. And then I handed over my passport and the guy picks it up and says very sternly, you are saying your name wrong. Hello and welcome to the Young In Kotisal podcast, where we are teachers helping teachers. My guest today is Dorothy Zimak. Dorothy is an author, editor, teacher, and ELT teacher trainer. Dorothy has taught English, French, and Japanese for over 20 years in Asia, Africa, and the United States. She currently writes and edits English language teaching materials and textbooks, as well as works of fiction and conducts teacher training workshops. Dorothy will be one of the plenary speakers at the Cotisol International Conference being held online February 19th to 28th. Welcome, Dorothy, to the Youngin Cotisol podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad we could find a compatible time zone, too. You are on the west coast of the United States? Yes. Pacific in, coast? In Eugene, Oregon. Oh, you're, you're up close to Canada. Well, there's the whole state of Washington in between us, but yeah, yeah. I'll have to look on a map. I was thinking <laughs> you were California when you said West Coast. I think we no, most... we're one state above California. So right, it's still a beautiful area, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It, we're we're actually a rainforest, not a tropical rainforest because we're not hot, but we get a lot of rain. It's in fact raining now. We do increasingly, and it was a big problem this year. Have fires. It's not just California that has the terrible fires. And we had two weeks when I couldn't leave the house, except a couple of days when I was had to go to a smoke shelter in order to be able to work. So, yeah, be green out there, people. Be green. Yeah. Because <laughs> we, yeah. we all breathe the air, and you don't want Oregon's forests burning. Indeed. Yeah. Wow. Uh, this I have a theme going with my... Um, class preparations for this coming our, our term starts in march uh -huh. and uh it's finding normal sort of playing off mm. of the finding nemo i was like this is not the year <laughs> to well, look for normal <laughs> nor, nor was last year um well i'm hoping this year is uh uh we find something that's normal so actually i want to start with that question so how do you find normalcy in your day-to-day World. Well, I, I am full-time freelance and have been since, I guess, 2006. So I don't know that I've had normal in a long time. I mean, normal in the sense of something regular or predictable because, you know, I, I, I take what work comes and it's different all the time. Hmm. Up until March 2020, I was doing a lot of overseas training of, of teachers and the travel ground to the hall. Actually, we we had one more week in Algeria, and but our training center that we were using was a school. So when schools closed, that closed the training center, and bam, we were out a week early. I looked at my plane ticket. I was supposed to go through Germany, but the U.S. had just put restrictions on people coming in from Germany. And I thought, well, how, how do I leave? How do I go home? Um, right. So I went to the airport, I grabbed a flight to London, uh, restrictions were put on the UK two days after I got in. But by the time I got to San Francisco, it was a mess and I was pulled aside by people in hazmat suits, taking my temperature, unsure what to do with me after they took 
my temperature. So I sat with all the other people who might have come from COVID hotspots, tightly packed in a little room for an hour until finally I stopped saying that I'd been through Germany on the way over, which is what had flagged my, my passport. And I just said England and they said, well, I, I can't see anything. And they let me go. I came home to find <laughs> that my husband had COVID. I mean, we didn't know at the time. So a week later, I got it myself. So all, all my international drama and it was it was waiting for me at home. Wow. And so how did the COVID uh, sort of play out in your uh, your case? In my case, well, I mean, I, I would consider that I had a, a light case. For, for a week, I was immobile. I mean, the fatigue was unreal. I could read a text message, but I could not type one. I couldn't answer my email. I couldn't read a book. I couldn't, if you propped up the laptop and started a TV show, I could not finish 20 minutes wow. of listening to something. Just unreal fatigue. Didn't eat. I did drink lots of tea because my husband, who by then had, had perked up, was bringing me tea. And then I said, I never really got a hacking. I got a bit of a cough towards the end. I got fever that came at night and went in the morning towards the end. It always felt like I had like a small dog sitting on my chest, although we have no pets. Uh, lost my sense of smell, which came back in about a week or two. A little bit of my taste, although that also came back. And then I had that chest pressure for another two and a half months, I'd say, before wow. I found someone who could treat it, which for me happened to be acupuncture and some massage of my lungs. The, the body worker I went to put her hands on me and said, oh my goodness, I've never felt anything like this. I was her, her first post-COVID patient and she treated one lung and then let me feel the difference so I could put my hands on one lung and, and press my chest and she said see how that's kind of spongy and I said yeah she says that's what you want now feel the untreated one and it was stiff as a board and I wouldn't have known that I had any lung issues had she not gone in looking I did ask how come my husband didn't have these lingering symptoms and she just laughed and she says and, and what does he do again and I said, well, he's a, a, a yoga therapist. <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she said, well, his lungs were in better shape to begin with. And my, mine were just normal middle-aged woman lungs, but he had, you know, I do yogic breathing every morning lungs. So, I mean, the best thing you have going for you, particularly if you're in a country like mine that last year had a little bit of disorganization around the whole COVID <laughs> policy, shall we say? I mean, your best defense is a strong immune system, and I'm, I'm glad I went into it healthy. But I have yeah. never felt anything like that. It felt different. Wow. I, wow, that's... You know, so, it, you know, put on your mask, socially distance, because you don't want this thing. You don't want this thing. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I I get that, and I just listening to your story, it kind of makes me shudder and and think I'm I'm glad that I actually I'm really glad that I live in Korea, because yes, they seem to yes. have uh, to adapted well. What to do, yeah. and and you know we're, there's there's some hope that a new administration will bring new policies for us, maybe maybe even some national leadership. Who who knows? But at the moment, it's all going state by state. And the, the governors of each state can make decisions on vaccine distribution. And pretty much in every state, 
governors have decided to go from by, by age. The elderly people, also healthcare workers, are vaccinated first. Our governor, I believe, so far is the only one who has made the rather controversial decision after the assisted living facilities and healthcare workers are done. She's doing teachers next, and not oh, that's good to hear, and not the elderly. So, because. Interesting. Teachers mean that schools can reopen and then parents can go back to work and there's problems with children, depression and and as she said there there's no easy choice. I mean if you right, if you right. if you open schools and save the mental health of kids but some elderly people die, that's not great. But if right. you save the elderly people and society collapses and children are damned, that's also not great. I mean so tough. Yeah, that's a tough one. Wow. wow. Yeah. I'm just thinking that uh, uh your uh, you've, you know, I can see evidence that you've been a really busy person. So I'm just thinking, when you, as you're telling me your story about being uh, ill, that uh, wow, it must have been tough to be idle and not being able to do things. I mean, well, you've I authored... was so out of it. I didn't. Know. It was interesting to me that I mean, because normally, I mean, I, I'm kind of active on social media, but if you know, if somebody doesn't post on Facebook for four days, you don't assume they have COVID. I mean, you you don't assume anything. You you assume they're taken some time off and getting work done or that they posted something and you didn't see it. But I had a co-author. We were working on a book and our publisher had sent an email that I think we should have both addressed. And she knows my email habits so well that she thought, that's, that's not, she wouldn't take three days to answer an email. So she sent me a text message and said, why haven't you answered your email? Are you okay? And I was able to say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually not okay. Right. Uh, wow. And she let the publisher know that, that I was ill. And, and, and then the next week I could get back into things. But it kind of makes you think if you were so incapacitated that you could not communicate, who would know? Right, right. Yeah. In, so. in our, our, our connected, disconnected world. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you have authored or co-authored or contributed to like a lot of books, yeah. textbooks, <laughs> different kinds of books. Well, so, and I wanted to ask you, you know, as a teacher, what in, from your perspective, what does make a great textbook? Big question. I mean, of course it depends on the end user as well. What's a great textbook for you might be a book that somebody else hates, but true. I, I do think the best materials that I've worked on either with others or my own you know, as, as a solo author, are things I've actually done in class with students. I can imagine the best worksheet or technique in the world, but then if you have a chance to try it out with real students, you always make some adjustments. That's right. right. Because you imagine how it's going to go, and you know that this will take 10 minutes, and then you do it, and they're done in five. Or they need 20. And you think, oh, oh, okay. I mean, even when I give a teacher training webinar, if I do it more than once, there's there's always some adjustment when I think, you know, we should spend more time on this point and we should spend less time here and we need to do something interactive here. So I, I think in, in sort of the heady days of the 1980s when publishers did more field testing of materials and, and trials of lessons, we got maybe some better books. Mm. in some ways. And, you know, how often are you in the classroom? How often are you, you dealing with with actual 
students. But we've also seen, which I've talked about in, in other places, a shift from authors writing textbooks to kind of publishers writing textbooks and authors just filling in the words according to a brief. And I, I, I don't honestly think those books are as good as some of the things we had in the 80s and the early 90s, which were a lot more author-driven. I do believe that, that a significant textbook should still have a good editor, right? Someone's got to be making your direction lines sensible and giving another read and looking for cultural sensitivity and making sure you have racial diversity in the photos. I mean, there's all these other pieces besides just writing a presentation of information and, mm -hmm. and you know, some application of it. But I'm not sure a junior editor with a degree in finance should have more sway over materials. I hope you don't think I'm joking. Uh, no, that, not at know. all. So, no, I, I can um, see. Yeah, I, I can smile, see in the books. But, right. Yeah. And the, everyone's sincerely doing their best. Nobody's trying to make a bad book, obviously. Sure. And everybody wants the books to be helpful to teachers and students. But I would say you should hire authors who know what they're doing, and that should be why you choose them. Well, I, I, I'm just glad it warms my heart to hear you say, even though it was maybe back in the 80s, that uh, that the authors or whoever was doing the writing was actually trialing these ideas. It's like oh, a recipe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and sometimes publishers would, would, would take a lesson and send it to another because it's it's harder to write for somebody else's students. Right. And if you're if your book is going to I mean, if you're there using your own worksheet and you have the whole purpose in your mind and you can add the support extemporaneously, that's different from picking up somebody else's worksheet and going into a classroom and somebody raises their hand and says, but miss, why do we do this here? And you think, I have no idea. I don't know what the author was thinking. <laughs> so it's nice to have strangers test your material, right? Not just your own class. But I remember, I mean, in some of my, my earlier days with Macmillan, we would take author trips and the editor and I would observe classes. We'd talk to students, we'd talk to teachers, wow. and we'd say, what's what's not working for you about the book you have? What do you wish you had in materials? And, and all that's sort of gone the way of, you know, budget cuts. It's nice to hear your perspective because I've looked at so many textbooks and thought, what were they thinking? But yeah. Hearing you speak, I, I realize, wow, it is tough to write a uh, a lesson or activity for a textbook for every possible situation. So really, yeah. the yeah, the yeah. user has to adapt it to their their specific. Oh aspect. yeah, I don't think it's it's, and I mean a a good textbook should be something that that has you know prepared text for you, so you don't have to go out and write a twenty minute reading passage, or you don't have to come up with a five minute listening passage, but it should be something that you feel, oh, I, I can work with this. This inspires me. I know a great activity I could bring in that goes with this. I mean, it's never going to replace the teacher's personality. It's sort of like a framework to, to hang your lesson on. I mean, I don't, it, it shouldn't be possible to pick up any textbook and just do it page by page without adding anything. Mm -hmm. And I don't think students would enjoy that. I think students want the teacher to infuse some personality and some individual touches and yeah. something that's that's authentic. I mean, I notice when I observe classes, I see very different types of teachers 
we had a guy that, that, that I taught with that I, we have to do all this, you know, peer review of one another. Sort of an older gentleman, a bit formal, which is not usual in, in Eugene, Oregon, where, you know, university professors are going by their first names and whatnot. And he dressed not quite in a suit, but it certainly wasn't jeans and a t-shirt. And he would set the students a task and they'd work quietly. And he would walk around the room with his squeaky leather shoes, squeak, <laughs> quiet, squeak, quiet. And his students loved him because he was authentic. That was his personality. And then they would go to the next class where they had, you know, a young kind of hippie looking woman with a, you know, a stud in her nose and all effervescent and whatnot. And they loved her too, because that was also authentic. So those two right. teachers could be using the same textbook, but they'd teach it very differently. And I, Good point. I mean, that's, that, that's normal. I think students like that. But you do, but textbooks also have a way of, of, of shaping your class. It's, it's very hard to fight kind of the curriculum decisions that the textbook has made for you. So when people ask, what should I look for in a textbook? It's like, I start first with that table of contents and think, is this the order I believe grammar should be taught in? There's a, a course book that otherwise I think is fantastic, but they don't introduce the simple past till unit nine of 12. Right. And I'm thinking that's just really late for me. I'd rather have the simple past before the present continuous, actually, because it's more useful and more right. common. So do do your beliefs about you know introducing language features, do they jive with your textbook? Because you're not going to be able to go unit one, unit nine, unit two, unit three, <laughs> right? Because the book's not, not designed that way. You can't skip around that much. Yeah. Well, you hope not, but uh, definitely I I do have to sk I think I do I skip around to grab grammar for one part because I think it fits better in another part. I kind of ah, rewrite well, the text. See there there's there's an indication that <laughs> Yeah. that no, maybe it, the, the book doesn't jive with your beliefs about how you would like to teach language. Right. Right, right. But it I, kind of it, it, sorry, it it just reminds me of your um your you did a, a a Pecha Kucha presentation. Oh yeah, uh, that was it was the a full it was presentation a... I ever did. <laughs> you know, I used to use it as a teaching tool. I do it's, like it's amazing. Yeah, it is tough. Yeah, I used to do five five uh, images, five seconds for each image to get yeah. students to really, and it, it was a lot of fun, but challenging. Uh, and then it's, work it's, up to twenty. The, the 20. timing is is intimidating, but you know what? What that doing that Pecha Kucha did? I think it forever changed the way I present. Wow! I have this. I have this. This son who um, was, you know, university student at some point. He was taking all his classes and took a whole Microsoft something something. And he was watching me some Christmas, preparing a, a PowerPoint to give as a, a presentation. He looks at it and he goes, "Mom, you need a lot more images." I said, yeah, but I'm working with language teachers and I'm working with non-fluent language teachers. I need some words on the screen. He said, yeah, but you need, got to be more visual. You need more images. And I argued with him for a bit. And I kind of thought, well, maybe he's probably got a point. So I tried to add a few more images in. But with the Pecha Kucha, you don't have time for any words. You have one image and then you talk. And being forced to do that broke me off my my 
dependence, I think, on words. There are still times now when I absolutely want words on a slide, but I even have some webinars I've done where I have an image first and I talk to that and I tell teachers, I'm going to give you a PDF of this later. So all the notes are going to come after the image. So see the image, remember it, it's all written there. I'm not going to go through them. So they still get all my notes, but I'm not talking to bullet points. I'm talking to a large image. Right. And the, the Pecha Kucha man, it just made, I, I think I did that one all out of memes. So there are actually words behind me. There were jokes behind me and then I, I spoke in front of them. Right, right. But I never, yeah. I never had to read the joke aloud. People can do that as they're listening. It was great. I really enjoyed watching it. And if anybody listening wants to see that it's video, still up it on is. YouTube, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's where I found it on, on YouTube. It was, uh, it was quite good. And you said in there, I think it was near the end, uh, as haters gotta hate, creators gotta create. <laughs> <laughs> what did you mean by that? Um, well, I think any, I mean, writing a textbook, I mean, it, it is, it is being an artist or a creator. And if you put your work out there, you need some degree of distance so that someone can pick up your book and say, oh man, this is crap. And you don't take it personally that right. what they mean is I can't use this. This isn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't fit with my beliefs. I don't want it, but it doesn't mean that you're not a worthy human. It just mm -hmm. means they don't like that book, but you, you created your book, but you're not your book. It's something right. separate. And I, I spend a lot of time, um, I write, but I also edit. I do a lot of fiction editing as well. And so I work with um, some new authors as well as some more experienced authors. And it's hard to get that kind of sort of emotional distance from your product. Sure. Right? I'm investing I, I my whole soul into this story yeah, and you're telling me it's not yeah, quite right. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, when, when you come to somebody and say, you need to change this person's name. And I've had authors say, I can't, I can't, because that's named after this somebody I know. Mm -hmm. uh, I had an author who didn't want to change his hero having ice blue eyes. And I said, that's kind of unusual with dark hair. And we dug around a bit. The ice blue eyes were the color of his dog's eyes. And he wanted to pay tribute to his dog. And it's like, yeah, but no, none of your readers are going to know that. you got to maybe get some distance and think if a reader picks up your book, what's going to make your hero sound believable? Mm -hmm. Not the ice blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, it's easy to see fiction as, as a work of, of creativity or a work of art, but, but mm -hmm. textbooks are too. It's, it's, you still spend all the time brainstorming and organizing and writing and getting feedback and peer review and shaping and, and revising and, you still treat it the same way. My, my husband is half a, a yoga therapist and half a painter. So I watch him on you know, a canvas or a drawing and he's going through, you know, in a visual way, the same process that I go through when I write a book. Right. So I think, you know, have the courage of your convictions, publish what you want to publish. And of course, now we've got this whole rise of, of self-publishing. There are small mm -hmm. presses. There's, there's indie publishing. I teach a course every summer on self-publishing for ELT professionals. So if you really believe in your idea and no publisher is going to take it because it's not a six book series that they commissioned in advance, you can now bring that, you can bring that out. That's pretty oh, exciting. I think. It is really exciting. So, and, and you, you created your own, I, I you've, I'm assuming you've created your own 
a publishing house? You you do your own yes, publishing? Yes, it's, yeah. it's not it's not a huge publishing house. It's it's me. Uh, I do have a, a part time book designer, web designer, visual person um, who who lives in Florida. We we started out actually as as a, a barter transaction. She oh. did my websites, and I edited her lesbian erotic novels. Uh, she's she's since moved on to other things and doesn't write anymore and so now I give her actual money but but she takes care of book covers website design all all the visual stuff and then I have a, a co-editor uh, Maggie Sokolik from the University of California Berkeley who runs their writing programs she used to handle um, a lot more of the ELT stuff she's moving into being just our fiction editor and so the ELT stuff rests with me so I do some of my own writing but I also publish other authors. And do you talk about geese? Uh, a lot of books about geese? <laughs> no what's books the... about geese. What's, what's the Waze Goose thing? Yeah, what um, is this Waze Goose thing? What is this Waze Goose thing? Normally I like to tell people, I, I ask them to guess what a Waze Goose is. Should I do that to you? What is? Have you looked it up already? I have. I, I've already researched oh, okay. it. Yes. Well, then obviously it won't work on you. But no, it, it, it came from my my high school years, I guess, from playing Scrabble with my family. I have an older brother, two parents. We'd play Scrabble with a game of four. And in my family, you were allowed to endlessly page through the dictionary, hoping that something was actually a word. Right. We didn't challenge each other. I mean, I, I guess they probably thought it was educational. The kids will learn some words. And one of us, I think it was my dad, was paging through the W's, looking for something he could do with his letters, and he came upon the word Waze Goose, and it was just so bizarre because of the way it's spelled, W-A-Y-Z-G-O-O-S-E. And, and the word was so unusual that, that he shared it with us, and I thought, gosh, I love that word. I love the way it looks. I love the way it sounds. And I love its meaning, which is an annual summer outing taken by members of a printing establishment, usually involving a picnic and a drive into the country. I mean... <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> That's and how weird. perfect and how perfect a name for your for your company. Right. So so I I I, I have been on a few Waze Gooses when when I was in uh, in England working a bit with Oxford University Press. Uh, my editor had a, a husband who took us punting on the Charwell and we punted down to a, a British pub and we had we had lunch and we called it a Waze Goose and that that was very exciting for me. And when I was explaining this to, to my son, much younger then, about how special this was, and he said, well, what, what's, what's so special about printing? Everybody has a printer in their house. <laughs> and I thought, well, <laughs> but in a way, is that not something to celebrate? If you would like to create some printed materials, everybody in their house can celebrate printed materials. So the Waze Goose was originally sort of, you know, a kind of an end of season event that the master printer would host for his employees. And it marked the time when you could no longer work by daylight and you had to start lighting candles. So, right. you know, turning of the earth, the seasons, just a way to mark summer going into fall. So since then, I've, I've kind of taken my own waste goose. My husband and I go up to the park. But the first year I took a, a Kindle with a cover of a book I'd published and put it next to a glass of champagne. But... Nice, nice. I, I noticed that you said Waze Gooses, and so I'm a little confused by that, uh, you know, the plural. Um, yeah, I don't think it's Waze Geese. It's it's one Waze Goose, two Waze Gooses. Huh, I wonder what the uh, 
So what, 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 what's the origin of the word? Well, I, I did ask myself that. And if anybody really cares, they can go to my website, which is, surprise, waysgoosepress.com. And there's a 3,000 word essay there, people, of all the research that I did, some photographs of, of Waysgoose Goose programs that the, the, the CEO of Cambridge University Press in England found in his dresser from the 1800s when he was moving offices. And so he scanned those and sent them to me. And it's very cool how it started with stumbling upon this word in a dictionary, yeah. playing Scrabble yeah. at home. And now it's, it's, and now it's my business, right? Yeah. And how many <laughs> years later it's become something. And I, I have had people point out to me that it's hard to remember. It's hard to spell. It's not like a strategic company name, but you know, I like it. I and think why, it is. Why, why shouldn't you name your company after a word that you like? So Absolutely. I love it. Personally, I love it. <laughs> I want to switch things a little bit sure. uh, to your, you, you're, you're doing a presentation at Cotisal International Conference. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I don't want you know, to, to tell me too much about it, but if you could just give us a hint about your topic. Oh, I'm glad, I'm glad you didn't ask me for my title because I've, I've submitted my abstract and I've already spoken to the conference organizers about, can I have a few more days for my title? Because I'm still trying to, <laughs> to choose the right one. So it doesn't have a title yet, but I know what I'm talking about, which is about, I mean, we were asked, all of the plenary speakers, to talk about, from our own personal viewpoint, the future of, of our profession. Where Where is it going? Mm -hmm. And I think even before... COVID hit, there was, I mean, kind of from the, the rise of the gig economy, there were so many more people patching together part-time jobs or being completely freelance. And what is the nature of our work? How many people really have a full-time job teaching? And what is a full-time job teaching? And that question became bigger when COVID hit. And I saw so many teachers who were already working full-time and then their institution said, okay, now you also need to plan and carry out online courses, which is a huge amount of work, yeah. but their pay didn't change. Mm -hmm. And then after they had figured that out came the hybrid class, which sounds even worse. <laughs> Again, with <laughs> different challenges, so increased work, but no more increased time or increased compensation. But what I noticed, what was very interesting for me, I mean, I, would, I had been doing in the previous year a lot of teacher training. When everything shut down in the world, I picked up online students again. I mean, I didn't look for them. They were, you know, some of us find students. Some of us have students thrust upon them. Mm -hmm. Students came to me somehow. And I thought, oh, how interesting that I'm teaching students in Japan because pre-COVID, I have high school students who are you know, studying TOEFL looking for U.S university entrances in, in right. a year and a half, I'm sure their parents would have sent them to someone local. But if someone local is shut down and there is no someone local, then if you're looking at U.S. university requirements, maybe you would want someone who knows about U.S. university requirements. You should just, you could just get someone in the U.S. I, and I think when the whole world opens up again, obviously we'll have face-to-face -face classes again, but we'll have left behind a lot of students and teachers who are now a lot more comfortable teaching and learning online. Mm -hmm. So you could be sitting in Korea, but you could have a student in Canada. But then how do we work out how you get paid for that? Should I pay you according to local fees in Korea where you're sitting? Or do I go by the local fees in Canada where the, where the student is sitting? 
And between Canada and South Korea, perhaps there's not much difference. But what about if your student is in Uruguay or in Sierra Leone? And, you know, we, we've also seen, <laughs> thanks to online learning, the rise of the webinar, right? I, right? I don't think a day goes by that someone doesn't say, oh, can you do a webinar on this? And sometimes, and I say, well, um, uh, perhaps I could, what's your fee? And there's like, oh, oh, well, there, there, there's no fee. But I can't, I can't do three to four hours of unpaid work every day. Yeah. Or there aren't enough hours left for paid work. We have to, as a profession, but also as individuals, figure out how much are you going to do for free? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I do a lot of work in developing countries, and there are a lot of places that don't have enough money to pay the same rates as Europe or, or North America for materials sure. or for training. And the answer surely is not to cut those people off or to leave mm -hmm. them behind. So how do we how do we integrate them into the educational community, but not at the expense of the people doing the training? I do say very directly in my abstract that I, I don't have any definitive answers because I, I don't think there are any. But boy, I have a lot of questions <laughs> that, that, that shape the way I react to work. And, and it's hard. It's hard to figure out in isolation because people are, I think, in most cultures are very reluctant to talk about money. Mm -hmm. And I've seen questions in closed private Facebook groups that are small and we should all know each other and feel safe where someone will say, what should I charge for a 45 minute webinar to teachers in X country? And nobody wants to say. Mm -hmm. People will say, well, 45 minutes, you could take your, your hourly rate and, and reduce it just a little. But nobody wants to say what the hourly rate is. I would say, well, it depends if it's a new prep or if it's something you've done before. So we're all comfortable talking about the factors that would go into the decision. But the poor person just wants to know what's a reasonable amount. And I think kind of as a community, we have no idea if we're talking 50 euros or 500 euros. I mean, really no idea. If I asked you to tell me what a price should be for that, that theoretical webinar, I think you'd be hard pressed to come up with a figure. Sure. Well, it's a very uh, uh, interesting sort of a subject to be taking on. And I'm, I'm sure your presentation is going to inspire some conversation. Uh, well, and that's, that. that's, that's really, I mean, I want people to start thinking and examining their own life and and also you know towards the end i want to talk a bit about how do you kind of sort of future proof your career right if you were teaching full-time and suddenly bam comes a pandemic nobody anticipated how does the nature of your work change if you lose your job what else can you do if you could suddenly no longer teach tomorrow but you don't want to leave the country you're in I don't know if you can go down and get a job in an office in South Korea if your Korean's not fluent. Right. Or if you don't have the same university degrees and whatnot. So if you had to earn a living not doing your teaching job starting tomorrow, where would you look? What skills would you be marketing? How would you market those skills? And I don't know that people have been asking those questions, but maybe they should. And maybe they should. So I want to go through some of the, the skills that teachers have that are marketable that they might not even realize they have. Yeah, I, I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. When I, when I first started publishing other people's writing, um, in addition to just my own, I actually started because I had some friends at the University of Oregon where I used to 
teach. Um, and there were basically two job categories. There was sort of the career track full on uh, sitting on committees and publishing and presenting. And then there were another track of people who just taught. They had a, a, a higher course load, but they weren't expected to do any volunteer work or be on committees or, or whatnot. And at a certain point, the university decided to get rid of that lower track. And suddenly, everybody not only had to do the more career track stuff, if they'd been there for a while, they sort of had to have done it. And so I was talking in October, I think, September, October, with a friend whose, whose review was coming up in March. And she said, what are the chances that by March, I will have thought of a research area, carried out the research, found something significant, written it up, sent it out, gotten accepted, and have the publication come out. I can't do that by March, but I have to have published. And I said, okay, um, on the other hand, you give me a document, I can make it a book in a few hours. Can you just write me a book and I'll publish it and hopefully that will count. And she thought for a bit and she said, but I don't know anything. All I do is teach. And I said, yeah, but teaching, teaching is a thing. Mm -hmm. Could you write a book on how to teach something? And she said, oh, certainly. So I said, well, who else is in your position? We pulled out the faculty role, found other people in the position. I said, oh, I really like Janine. Let's grab Janine and let's write some books. And she said, oh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. she was thinking about it. And I said, but you're, you're probably not going to do it, are you? Because <laughs> if you've never written before, it's hard to know how to begin writing. Sure. And I said, well, look, what if we took like a weekend, like Friday afternoon after class, and we went to the coast with a bunch of laptops, some bottles of wine, some salty snacks, and, and I, were, I was there to help you brainstorm. And she perked right up and said, oh, I love the coast. So we grabbed <laughs> this other person. We rented an apartment for three days. We went out to lunch once. The rest of the time, we just brought food in. And one of them worked on self-study books for students. And the other one worked on teaching tips for teachers. And by the end of the weekend, we had three books. And I didn't wow. care if they sold because we were trying to save their jobs, which, which we did. But they're, both of them were great teachers and their books started selling. And from that, the whole series grew. And suddenly I had authors contacting me saying, oh, 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 can I do your reading tips book? I'd love to do pronunciation. Oh, oh, can I do young learners? And now I have a whole series of books, how to teach, and also for, for students on, on how to learn. And just by skill area, reading, listening, speaking, yeah. grammar, the same kind of information for teachers that you would find in a good teacher's guide for a book, except it's not tied to any book. Right. And I right. thought, let's target, let's target teachers who are not necessarily using one book or another, who don't want the theory of teaching listening since the 1970s. They just want to know what are some things I can do in class next week? Mm -hmm. What's a good website? What's a YouTube video that will work with my intermediate students? Let's just give them 50 tips plus one bonus. And if all 50 tips aren't usable, that's okay. Surely some of them will be. And let's price really cheap. So the student books are all priced at 99 cents or 99 pence or the local Whatever. currency equivalent. Right. The teacher's books have, have crept up to, to $3 now because so many people asked to have them also made 
as paperbacks, so we had to expand them and add more content, and so they're, they're, they're a bit more substantial now. But I thought, if you're a teacher who has to buy your own materials, you're not going to drop 75 bucks on a professional development title because your institution isn't going to cover that for you. Right. And it is going to have all the theoretical background and, and this and that. But if you're an in-service teacher who's working now, who just wants some extra ideas now, what, what is there for you? Well, so. that is, that is uh, to come from a, 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 like a girl's weekend on the coast, uh, that, that image, <laughs> that, that is fabulous. Uh, we had a good it, time, but man, we, we, worked, we worked straight through that weekend. Like I said, we, we, let, we went outside. I think we had one walk on the beach just to clear our heads and, and one lunch in a restaurant and the rest was just take out food and, and banging away. And when one person got stuck and said, I can't think of anything more then the other people would say, Oh, well, let me, you know, let's talk through it. And we were there to sure. brainstorm. I mean, just the way I tell students they should work on their papers. We were helping with the brainstorming and the peer reviewing and the revising. Yeah. Well, that I love the creativity, the, and the, uh, as well as the the cooperation of that that whole image, uh, yeah. do you have any other? Do you have any projects? I mean, that was an unplanned. Do you have any projects planned for uh, for this coming year? Um, yeah. So I I started working on um, graded readers. I, I published some other people. I also do my own. I'm, I'm a huge believer in extensive reading, but I also find when it comes to creating graded readers that I have a slightly different take from some of the really kind of hardcore ER crowd that, that I respect enormously. They, there are very sort of rigid word list requirements that I think were actually, of course, kind of dreamed up or, or figured out in the days before everyone had a dictionary on their phone or a dictionary on their ebook. So I think we can relax a little about, you know, the, the vocabulary load. And I'd like to spend more time working on what is a really compelling story. So last year when I was working with a, a British Council team on improving reading skills for uh, Algerian high school students, and I thought, and I looked through their textbooks, which they don't have any, I mean, there's a national curriculum textbook. It is what it is. And the readings are pretty much all nonfiction of a somewhat pedantic, moralistic bent. And I thought, you know what these kids need is some, some short stories. And I thought back to my high school years, what were the short stories that made me love reading? That made me go, oh, wow, this is a great story. I thought about ones that I'd liked and ones that my son had responded to. And they're all public domain. That's probably why they were in my high school textbook to begin with. Yeah. And I thought, excellent, public domain. I'll just grab these. And the language level was high. I thought, whoops, we're going to need a leveled version of that. And I could not find any leveled versions of the stories that I wanted. And I was, you know, leaving in like nine or 10 days. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to level them myself. So I leveled them myself, gave them to the Algerians, put a, you know, a special cover on it saying, this is the Algeria schools edition. Give it out countrywide, spread the word. But having done the work, I thought, oh, well, maybe I should kind of polish them up and, and, and sell them myself. Right. And I sent one to a friend of mine in Japan who's, who's, who's heavily into the extensive reading, and he ran it through a program that would tell me if it really was B2, as I claimed. Mm. Uh, and he said, well, you're close, but you have this many you know, C1 words. And I said, yeah, but if you're a B2 reader, you're, I hope, moving towards C1. You're not staying a B2. And he said, plus you have some off-list words. 
And two of my off-list words were piano and beer. And I said, okay, then I have a problem with the list. Because I don't think a B2 learner in most countries in the world is going to be hung up on piano or beer. Mm-hmm. I do believe that even an experienced author, even one like me who happens to be an editor, can benefit from an outside eye. So I actually got an editor uh, who is the person who, who edited the first textbook I ever wrote. Oh, So just by, oh, we stayed in touch over the years. And I said, I'd like you to go through the book, but, but here's my goal. I want to keep the atmosphere of the original story. It's got to be a gripping story. So where there's a word that you feel is, is too high or whatnot, then I, I want to ask the question, is it a word worth keeping? that I can either pre-teach, which I did with a few of them, but not too many, or something I can assume they'll look up or get from context, or is that word not really working hard enough to be worth it? And so he went through it with that eye and, and kind of circled every hard word and said, I don't think this word is actually adding anything to the story. Or this one's off list, but boy, it's a great word. So I've, I've leveled the stories and, and sent all of my stories through him to edit with with that feeling to, I love it, to yeah. hopefully you know keep keep people engaged in reading and you know I, you've probably picked up graded readers that just felt too ESL mm-hmm. and and the story's dead actually for the, the story that I chose to to send to my my ER friend which is the monkey's paw yeah gripping story he sent me a, a publisher's version of the story at, at a lower level to be fair and he said, you know, this one ticks all the boxes, no off-list words, whatnot. And I read it, and, and he said that his students had hated the story when he tried to use it in class. Huh. And I thought, nobody hates that story. It's a great story. But I read that version, and the story had been killed dead. <laughs> they, it wasn't the vocabulary. They'd gone in and changed the plot and added explanation where no explanation was needed. You know, it, it, it hinges around the guy making a wish for a small sum of money he doesn't need, mm-hmm. and that, that wish goes wrong. Right. But they changed the book to have him wish for a large sum of money. But then it looks like he's being punished for being greedy, Right. which is a very different story. And I thought, oh, man, no, no, you can't change the heart of the story, because that's what grabs students, the, the impact. So it's how do you adapt a reader but still keep that heart so i've already the, the one i'm going to work on next I, I even have a cover but i i keep every time i sit down to work something else comes up i want to do the most dangerous game which was a story that my father who is 90 still talks about enjoying in high school and wow. my son when he read it in middle school was so inspired on his own not for school he did an entire lego stop action movie of that story so i thought there's something about that story that that catches readers right so that, that that that's my next one i haven't even decided what level i want to make it but pro- a great title too one. yes Cap- yes you know, catches your attention most dangerous game dangerous yeah. game and it is yeah. about hunting so there's the the wordplay on game right and the other the other i guess belief that i want to put into graded readers is i, I don't mind a little vocabulary support in the beginning and mm-hmm. some discussion questions if a teacher wants them before and after maybe some projects or interesting things to do after but when i was looking for graded readers for one of my japanese students 
who said he liked um, dystopian science fiction stuff. And that's not, I don't read a lot of that, so I don't know what's current, what's good. So mm -hmm. I posted in, a, in a, a group and I said, hey, anyone know any great graded readers on these topics? And people gave me a bunch of suggestions. And the one that sounded the most interesting, um, I looked at a, a copy online and it was a great story, you know, but every two or three chapters, the story would stop and there'd be two pages of grammar exercises and vocabulary exercises and structure. And, you know, I'm sure they were very useful sure. for language, but man, again, it just was, was killing that reading experience. And I right. thought it's okay to have some exercises. And I know teachers like to, if they're going to do something with a whole class, they'd like to have some of the work done for them. But if a student is going to sit down and read a book, you don't want to stop every three chapters and be punished by grammar. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> you, 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 you really remind me of a, uh, a fellow, uh, I think you know, Aaron Jolly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I bumped into him maybe before 2010, like a long time ago, mm -hmm. and he mm -hmm. had started this extensive reading library. And uh -huh. I remember walking in and the seeing students sitting on the floor reading bo reading English books and just picking yeah. off what they were interested in and and yeah. you know that was his passion uh, yes, yes, and yes I see the same passion in in, in you as well so, so I'd like uh, to create the kinds of books that would go into Aaron Jolly's library yeah that, yeah that that students would read not because the teacher says you need to hit a word count of blah in order to get an A but because mm. the stories are intrinsically interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we all have experiences in high school of, you know, loving a book because we read it before it was assigned. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> but once it's assigned and you have to work on it, it's it's harder to love that book because you're, you're working on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, talking about passions. You're um, uh, you talk about music in uh, a, a little bit and uh, using uh, music. And I'm yeah, wondering, yeah, are, are yeah. you are you a musician? Um, I'm, I'm a former musician-ish. I, I, I grew up on piano and in um, university years I changed to harpsichord because I, I like early music. I'm kind of Bach and before mm -hmm. and so it's nice to play that on original instrument. I played recorder a bit in a school club and when I when I started teaching and traveling it got, I mean, piano is not an easy instrument to travel with. I, sure. did, I did have a harpsichord in Japan for a while because I, I, I found a harpsichord builder and of course, Japanese houses, Japanese houses being so small, he could not build a harpsichord and keep his own. So I <laughs> had his while he continued to make others. But it was, it was hard to find a teacher. And then when I did finally find one teacher, it was hard for me to be a student in the Japanese way. I mean, I mm. brought in some music and said, I'd like to work on this. And he was just astonished. I mean, the student does not say what pieces I mean, they, they will be told what to work on and he said you will work on this piece and the one piece he chose was the one piece that um, a former boyfriend of mine had played all the time and had later committed suicide and I said I just you know emotionally I I, I don't want to play his piece and he was furious and I thought you know it's just <laughs> it's I'm a grown-up I don't have to do this I, I can play without lessons I'm never going to perform so now what I do, again, in non-COVID times, and also when I'm not traveling too much because there are attendance requirements, is I belong to a women's chorus that meets mm. at the university, so I can, I can walk there. And I would say it's, it's not particularly my kind of music. I kind of allow sort of pop this and stuff from the 1950s. Or, but it's just fun to sing. It's fun to make music with other people. And every fall, we get to do one classical piece, which is really what I want. 
Mm -hmm. And just a kind of a great bunch of people. And it's nice to get together and do music with people. So Absolutely. Yeah. I'm envious. Yeah. Yeah. And I absolutely love the harpsichord. I remember looking at plans to build an harpsichord, yeah. but I never got yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you, you still can. Uh, and so how, I, how I, is your passion for music? How's that come into your uh, your work, publishing or teaching or Publishing is, is tricky because there's so many rights issues around music. Right. I mean, you know, people are like, why don't listening books have more songs as well? Because it's not just the music that's copyrighted, but it's the lyrics that are copyrighted and the performance of the music that's copyrighted. And I do believe artists should be paid for their work. I'm not complaining about copyright. So a teacher playing a song off YouTube in a class and using a worksheet, that's that's not a copyright violation. But if you put it into a commercial book that is for sale, mm-hmm. that's that's the issue. Well, it's, uh, what about writing your own your own lyrics, your own music? Um, Ever thought of that? I don't. I, I have. I, I do have. Again, as a, a project that Maggie and I would like to do, my my, my fiction editor Maggie is mm-hmm. an accomplished uh, bluegrass fiddle player mm-hmm. and is married to a musician, and they coincidentally have a little recording studio on their property sounds perfect and i said maggie we should do we should do some public domain songs but you guys perform them and uh, you know as soon as we get a few clear weekends we're totally going to make that book we've been planning that for three years oh good (laughs) i'm so glad to hear that (laughs) well but we, we haven't had a clear weekend yet but it could still happen. It could and, still and, happen. Yeah, and we'll get the, this COVID thing under control and, uh, and you, so you're free to move about. Well, I, I have to say I've really enjoyed this conversation. And, oh, uh, me too. Yeah, I, I find uh, your, your attitude towards what you do and towards life generally to be inspiring. And uh, I think our listeners will as well. So thank you very, well, very we're, much. We're, we're lucky to work in, in an inspiring profession. So. Yeah, and exercise our creativity. It's true. Yes, it's... and and help people. So mm-hmm. what's not what's not to like? Well, I'm looking forward to listening to you, seeing you, and listening to you speak at the uh, Cotisol International Conference, which is being held February 19th to 28th. And uh, if people are interested in when you are speaking, they can uh, check out the Cotisol website. Or do you know when you are? I think oh. I'm. Well, because. We had to go through this whole thing with with time zones. Yes, I, I know. I know what time and day it is for me, but it's a different time and day for you. Right. So I'm not. It's it's towards the end, but they <laughs> should definitely check the Cotisol website to get yes. You know the the proper. Imp- I don't want to say anything that's going to confuse people. Yeah, there's there's a table there they can check definitely very oh, exactly very exactly. Yeah. I mean, we cross the date line. It's going to be Korea's morning and my evening the day before. So. Right. Well, I have been speaking to Dorothy Zimak, who is on the West Coast of the United States and, uh, as I said, uh, presenting in February at the Cotisol International Conference. Thank you very much, Dorothy. Well, thank you for having me. See you, see you online. After speaking with Dorothy for the first time, I came away feeling inspired and motivated. She's that kind of a person. You can learn more about Dorothy Zimak and her body of work by visiting DorothyZimak.com and WaysGoosePress.com. And, of course, be sure to check the international conference schedule at koreatessel.org 
for information on all the amazing people that will be presenting at this year's international conference. This podcast presentation has been brought to you by the Youngin Gyeonggi chapter of Kotisal, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting scholarship, dissemination of information, and facilitating cross-cultural understanding of teaching and learning English in Korea. Thank you for listening.